especially considering the fact that, you know, looking around the corner of my eye for snipers, I've never loved Ghostbusters. I don't know. It, it just never appealed to me. Dude, the sniper comment. <laughs> Big Brother's I'm, always watching, you know. <laughs> Big Brother's always watching. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's always watching. His, um, Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Plot Devices, your exclusive film and TV talk from three people who are still waking up. We're doing this very early fourth ball break. We rarely do this. I am one of your hosts for today, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing today? You seem very awake on our face cams. I am wide awake. There's a little bit of eyeliner left around my eyes from last night, <laughs> so, but you know, I'm ready to dive into this episode. We have a ton of new stuff to talk about. And I'm, I'm happy to be back on the pod. You two did an excellent uh, job hosting just you two last week. We're glad you're back. Yes, yeah, so glad you're back and cannot wait to, you know, get into all of the stuff off camera. And shout out to again to Melanie Rogoff for filling in last week. Also from last week, Samantha and Corvaya joining us once again. Sam, how are you today? I'm great. I'm great. I, like you, I'm still waking up, but I got breakfast, I got coffee, and that's all I could ask for in the world, you know? <laughs> So you guys are smart. I just had like a couple grains of like leftover rice I had and it's sustaining me quite well. Do you mean prison food? <laughs> Maybe. You don't know where I am. Let's get, let's get started with our first main topic for today. Uh, as the internet has done for basically the past number of months, we have been wondering, where is the new Spider-Man No Way Home trailer? When is it going to be? The movie's December. Where oh, where could it possibly be? We finally, we got it. It dropped this week. It premiered at a fan event in Sherman Oaks. Tom Holland was there. Uh, guest, uh, guest speaking there. Koi Jandrew, who is a commentator who I really admire, was moderating the whole thing. At the end of it all, we got the world premiere that dropped later on online on the Sony Pictures YouTube channel of Spider-Man No Way Home, the second full-length trailer. The trailer displays more of the multiversal shenanigans as Tom Holland's Peter Parker attempts and fails spectacularly to get Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange to erase his revealed secret identity as a result of the events of Far From Home. More importantly, though, it shows a number of villains from the Sam Raimi and Mark Webb films, specifically Alfred Molina's Dr. Octopus, Thomas Hayden Church's Sandman, Jamie Foxx's Electro, and a really cool redesign, by the way, Reese Fonz's Lizard, and, of course, Willem Dafoe back as Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, in a more metallic suit. We'll get into it. John Watts returns to direct this from previous Tom Holland Spider-Man projects alongside returning cast members Zendaya, Jacob Batalon, Marissa Tomei, and John Favreau. Spider-Man No Way Home is set for theatrical release on December 17th. We're going to be talking about that as well as some other things uh, coming up later on. Sam, I want to go to you first. After all of the speculation and all of the hype beyond this trailer, did this live up to it and did it at all change your expectations for the movie going in? I have so many thoughts. <laughs> so to keep it contained, I feel like it did meet my expectations. I thought it was a perfect amount of excitement and and mystery in a way, because I think if it's true that the other Spider-Men are in this movie, I am so glad it wasn't in the trailer, because that's a moment that you need to have in theaters. Like if you want to recreate the, you know, like, Endgame madness and theater reactions, that's got to be like in the theater and not in the trailer. So glad they're not in it. But I have seen so much speculation on the internet that that last scene near the Statue of Liberty or in that big construction area that they were edited out because um, I think it was IGN. I'm not positive, but I think they did like they hosted some kind of trailer reaction with uh, Zendaya, Tom Holland and forgive me. What's uh, what's um, Ned's name again? Um, the actor. Oh, uh, Jacob Batalon. 
thank you. And so um, the three of them were doing a trailer reaction. We couldn't see it. It's just they were watching it on a computer. And at one point, Tom Holland said, where's the, and he cuts off, like in that scene that that's on the trailer, like people are looping it together. And he's like, where's the, and he stops. <laughs> and if you also look in Brazil, it looks like um, they kind of screwed up. I don't know how they got a different version or how it leaked, but it looks like Lizard at one point is getting punched and swayed. And it's just like, okay, so I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> I don't know if maybe that's Miles Morales. Like maybe we're not talking enough about Miles because he turns invisible. So maybe he shows up in addition to the others. Um, and also, are we really going to go through that emotional trauma again of um, MJ falling down the scaffolding just like Gwen Stacy like are we going to go through that emotional trauma again but I do have a theory about that but before I dabble on uh, I'd like to hear what your guys' thoughts are leave it to Spider-Man to be diving through construction debris as he's saving someone he loves will he catch her I hope you've seen Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man I hope you've seen Tobey Maguire's because we don't know the answer to that question sometimes Um, will it be too late when they finally catch him you don't know so that is definitely an intense moment. I'm happy they included it in the trailer because it's so on. I can't really, can I really say on brand if it's a completely different Spider-Man universe? I'm going to say on brand because like I said, leave it to him. It was amazing to see um, the MCU's version of the Sinister Six, who I recently learned about through my little game on my phone called Marvel Strike Force. Um, I believe in the game and maybe even in the probably in the comic books, they involve other characters too, like Rhino, as well as Swarm. Um, but it's good to see the returning enemies that we've known from the movie versions, like Jamie Foxx's Electro. Um, the new trailer gave us an angry Doctor Strange because of the meddling with that spell that Peter was doing. And I hope that we experience that moment for quite a while in the movie. I really want to see Spider-Man against Doctor Strange um, because that fight sequence is going to be something uh straight out of their concept art for the first Doctor Strange movie with the tr- with the trains stacking around each other, with them falling through like a city that's unfolding within itself. These are just really awesome visuals to have in a Spider-Man film and to to know that his instruction to Peter is that each of these enemies get destroyed by their Spider-Man. It, it just puts Peter, our, it puts our Peter in a new situation of, can I kill these enemies who, who he may just think are people like we don't know his moral standing with these enemies who he's never met. So it's an interesting situation. And I'm so happy that this is where the MCU is going. You know, it, it, it was speculated even before the, the trailer, the first trailer dropped and to have, you know, the Sinister Six and having Peter Parker against them um, in this style is so rewarding for fans of the, the long term. I wonder if the strange fight with Spider-Man uh, supports those Mephisto theories, too, that everyone's saying. Because it's like, why would he be so irresponsible to just cast this big spell that'll open up the multiverse? Like, why would he cause chaos like this? Um, and so people are thinking that he might be Mephisto, like, in disguise. It's drones. Okay, Brandon, what do you think? <laughs> it's Mysterio back from the dead. Um, here's the thing. I talked about this a little bit on the latest episode of No Caps Require with our friend of the show, Sky Meredith. Go listen to that, by the way. It was a lot of fun. And I became the cynic about it. Like, I don't love this trailer. I, yeah, I, I know. Hot take. Oh, my gosh. I want to. Okay, yeah. I, I still have to listen to that episode, so. Because, look, at the end of the day, I recognize it is cool. It looks great. 
I love the new looks for Tom Holland Spider-Man. I love the mentorship role that Stephen Strange is going to play to him and the dynamic for Stephen as a character. Like we talked about it a little bit with What If, kind of seeing the evolution of Stephen as a kind of pillar of the Marvel Universe and stepping up to more of that responsibility to young heroes as well. Like I like that idea. And obviously it's cool to see the villains back. Like Alfred Molina looks so good as Doc Ock. I love the new look of the tentacles. I love the refined Green Goblin suit. Jamie Foxx's Electro suit. I I don't love the headpiece. I've never liked the headpiece, but you know what? Everything else I really like about it. And Ten times I, better than Blue Man Group, though, to be real. I don't, mind, I don't mind the Blue Man Group, but you're right. It's a better look. But at the end of the day, I think, number one, from a trailer perspective, I think the first one gave us a clearer look at what No Way Home is going to be. It set up the stakes from Far, far From Home coming back in. It set up the new stakes with Doctor Strange, and it set up the main plot of the story. This one is... It's no wonder this was a fan event trailer. Like this was made for Spider-Man obsessed fans to go through every detail and be like, that's this. And and, da, 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 da. and all that is cool. And I love that people have been ecstatic about it. And I love seeing all the you know amazing reactions online. But the other point is I just I haven't been as excited about this as I have with other Spider-Man movies. I you guys know me. I have wanted this to be Tom Holland's third Spider-Man movie. And this feels like everything that Tom Holland's third Spider-Man movie shouldn't be. Like it's it's huge. It's overwhelming. It's multiversal stakes. It's magic. It's, you know, fan castings and everything else. And that's not even getting into the Toby and Andrew stuff, which again, isn't confirmed, but now I'm actually willing to entertain the possibility because of that Brazilian trailer. Ah, but at the same time, I have to say like, I was not the biggest fan of it. I'm still looking forward to the movie, but I don't think it was a great trailer. That's honestly a fair take because at a certain point, it does feel like you know, somebody wrote up fan fiction for this new Spider-Man movie. And it's like, here's our dream Sinister Six. And we don't know who the possible sixth one is. And so that'll just give a lot of people speculation and theories to think about, like, this is what I want. And then I think that's setting up some fans for failure. So that is a pretty fair point. I do like your take on it. Let's move on to our second major topic of the day. It's all about Harry Potter. Uh, if you guys tuned into our episode a couple weeks ago, we were talking about movie anniversaries. And one of the big ones this month, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone turns 20 years old. This, we predicted it. Yes. That this would happen. <laughs> we knew that there was going to be news about this. And, and honestly, it was probably a no-brainer. Like, people are going to look back and nostalgia-wise. But specifically, Chris Columbus looked back, who, of course, directed uh, Sorcerer's Stone as well as Chamber of Secrets. He did a long-form piece with The Hollywood Reporter. And in that piece, he talks about, among a number of things, how he got the movie made, how his discussion with J.K. Rowling went but also his interest in creating a Cursed Child sequel movie. Uh, this is specifically what he had to say about that. Quote, a version of Cursed Child with Dan, Rupert, and Emma at the right age. It's cinematic bliss. If you're a film nerd or cinephile, it's like what J.J. Abrams did with Star Wars. To be able to actually see these adult actors now back in these roles, oh yeah, it would be amazingly fun to make that film or two films. Uh, again, no movement on a Cursed Child movie has actually happened. We're still knee-deep in the Fantastic Beast movie, no matter what Warner Brothers wants to do with it. Uh, that third movie is still set to come out next year. We'll see. Also in Harry Potter news, we are set to get a Harry Potter Sorcerer's Stone reunion uh, this coming January. As far as we know, J.K. Rowling is not confirmed to be as part of that. I think they've been distancing themselves from as well. I haven't got that confirmed. But that reunion will be broadcasting on both HBO and HBO Max uh, in early January. No, I want to get your response first. In regards to the Cursed Child theories and the Force Awakens-ness of it all, does Chris Columbus have a point that this could be a valid story or two in his mind? And what do you think of the idea of doing a reunion with or without J.K. Rowling? I think criminal the way we got that flash forward at the end of Deathly Hallows Part 2 uh, that showed us the, the, the trio as, as grown adults with their young children. Um, it just kind of felt 
it was in that moment where I was like, this is very Hunger Games of them, where we got Katniss at the very end and we got that flash forward as well. Um, and maybe I'm inserting memories because I've read the book. I do not know, actually. Uh, the Hunger Game ones is what the one I'm doubting. But um, to see them return to these roles, uh, like like Columbus says, as adults and approaching the characters um, the same they would their actual lives, because that's the point that they're in. Um I'm not against it. What the heck? I've, I've get, I got such a kick out of these movies that, um, I'm really anticipating the reunion. I know that HBO Max also hosted the Friends reunion, so we can look forward to something, um, as rewarding as that. I'm just curious about what they're going to talk about. Like, I'm curious what, what kind of stuff they're going to be covering, uh, while they're together. Cause all, all I'm going to be thinking when that Harry Potter reunion debuts is, please don't be over yet. Like I'm going to keep pausing it and figure out how much minutes I have left because it's so rare to have these three, I think in a conversation together um, ever since their last film. So it, it'll just be so nice and nostalgic for us to get that back. And if that means a new movie in the future, hell, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't want it. As long as James Corden stays far, far away. Uh, over to you, Sam. Oh shoot. He said it. He said the thing. Um, no, uh, speaking of my fanfic take from earlier, this is also fanfic in my opinion. I, <laughs> I, I like Chris Child for giving me characters that I like back just to see where are they at right now. But there are some situations in the book where it feels so fanficy that it's like, okay, are we really having this person's daughter come back for? whatever reason like because they still hold a grudge for what they did to their parent like are we are we really gonna have them come back like in this revenge tale like it, to me it just felt so lazy I, I don't know i would have rather just had a very casual story about the harry potter trio with like literally no conflict just like day in their life how are they doing something really short like the size of tales of beetle and bard which is like very small and so <clears throat> i would have rather have had that but having said all that i would be curious like i'm not against seeing some kind of media on it whether it's a movie sh or like a limited tv series or something i think it would still be in <clears throat> interesting to see um someone's take on that especially chris columbus's so not against it but i'm still kind of that person who's advocating for like a prequel series where we see like the marauders when they went to hogwarts back then like i would love to see something like that rather than this um but yeah once again not against it and i'm excited about the hbo max reunion because i i thought they did a really good job with the friends one i'm also a fan of friends and um that one was really cool so excited for it to happen um and yeah congrats on 20 years for harry potter yeah, I know there's been some cynicism around, you know, COVID era TV and film reunions, and I, I totally get it. Like, some of them do feel cheesy, and I did love the Friends one, but I completely acknowledge it felt like a variety show, and that's not entirely what I wanted. Oh, um, heck yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, I kind of had to distance myself from that. But, like, the Harry Potter one, I feel like, is going to be a very similar tale. I don't know if they've gotten the same producers from it, to correct me if I'm wrong, but I, again, I feel like the idea of them coming back and exploring this particular story 20 years later with a guy like Chris Columbus, who for better or worse had such a great grasp on the tone of those first two movies on the idea of, you know, kids growing up and facing adversity, like those things in the book uh, did so well, as far as the cursed child adaptation, I've read up on it. Um, it's a neat story. I don't actually hate the idea of it. Um, I don't want an adaptation of that. I would love to see a Harry Potter sequel that is just not the cursed child. Like I, like, you know, I felt teased at the very end watching that scene in Deathly Hallows. And I would love to see those types of those incarnations of the characters explored more, especially if it is, especially if it's Daniel Radcliffe this day and age, who has picked the most weird projects in existence and has only developed even more as an actor, not to say anything of, you know, Rupert and Emma, if they're great too, but specifically of Daniel. 
Um, but I don't know if I want to see Chris come back. Like I would, frankly, I'd like for Chris to direct a good movie first. Um, but beyond Ooh. that, I'm sorry, Pixels was bad. So once he does that, then we can talk about him coming back to Harry Potter. But as far as the idea goes, it sounds neat. We are going to move on to our final main topic for today. Uh, if you guys are sick and tired of us talking about the live-action Avatar series from Netflix, sorry, it's a big deal. We love the series. We want to talk about it. And this is probably the last time, fingers crossed, we're going to be talking about it for a minute because we just got our last of the main cast editions and a production confirmation. Production has officially begun on the live-action Avatar series from Netflix. They've started shooting in Vancouver. Albert Kim is, of course, showrunning. We mentioned this before. But most importantly this week, we got three very big, uh, very significant casting announcements. Uh, Lim K. Su from Anna and the King and a bunch of other things. He is going to be popping up as Monk Yatso, who in the original series is Aang's mentor. Spoiler, he long dead. I don't know what they'll do with him, but he's cast in that as the main role. We also have Ken Lung popping up from industry and a bunch of other things here or there. He's going to be popping up as Commander Zhao. Of course, the role reigned famous by uh, Jason Isaacs, the arrogant rival to Zuko in the original series. We'll see what happens to him afterwards. But most importantly, uh, Paul Sun Hung Lee has been cast as Iroh, Zuko's wise, tea-loving uncle. Uh, of course, again, play showrunning is already supposed to start. We got the most of the cast already. I'm going to stop talking while I stutter even more because it's taken already 10 takes to do. Noah. What do you think of finally getting the production? We're, we're getting it. Like, it's happening. They're shooting this thing. And are you excited with the new cast announcements? Of course I am. Avatar has been one of our um, little safe treasures here on the Pop Devices pod. Because, yes, we do keep returning to it. Because we are all genuinely excited and fans of the original series. Um, I did find out one production detail that excited me more than others. And that was that this is going to be using a uh, virtual stage that is very similar to the one used uh, during the Mandalorian shoots. And so what that allows the production team to do, the shooting team is to create um, these virtual environments that are um, rendered in real time, which is big news just because it can place you in particular avatar settings that are going to feel so um, at least I hope um feel so appropriate and realistic for the show and for their environment. Um, anyone who's seen the Mandalorian knows the praise that it's gotten for it's um, I don't want to say set design, but just for it, all of its locations that it was able to pull off for that show. Um, and it looks great. It looks, it, you believe that you're on Tatooine whenever you see um, Pedro Pascal uh, riding on his speeder bike there, but learning that detail for the last airbender at Netflix's series, it just, I don't know. It just, it bolstered my opinion of what the series is going to achieve beyond just what those castings have uh, made us think. So that was one detail that I, I was very happy to learn. And to finally learn the casting of um, Uncle Iroh uh, was rewarding as well. I, I personally don't have too much to say about it other than, you know, we're just super excited to see any news about Avatar. And especially, you know, I'm, I'm still riding on this being hopefully much, much better than the M. Night Shyamalan one. I know I keep poo-pooing on that each time we mention it, but it's it's that bad. Uh, so I just feel like, you know, this is exciting. I think the casting for Paul Sun-Yong Lee is really, really, really cool because I like him and Kim, Kim's convenience. So uh, I think that's that's going to be a really awesome cast to see on Cairo. And, um, you know, that that's really the only thought that I had for it. Just excited to see it and can't wait to see our first look whenever that may be in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'll be a broken record. I, you know, I'll hold a lot of my judgment for when we see that first look or for that first teaser, because that is going to be so much of, you know, beyond just because all we've seen so far is the concept art of Appa and that's cool, but we've only seen so much. Um, and it's my desktop wallpaper. Is it really? Oh, it is. And it looks beautiful. Every time I open up my computer. 
you're like, ah, there's my son. Um, I like these castings very much. I mean, like, I've watched Ken Lung for a while. I'm not familiar with uh, Lim K. Su's work, but, you know, I like the idea of maybe giving Monkey Atsu more of an expanded role in this. Again, taking advantage of that runtime that we've heard about of being, you know, 10 hours long. I think you could do something with that. Uh, but Paul Sun Young Lee is the news. Like, I saw a lot of fan casts for this, and I've seen the first couple episodes or so of the first season of Kim's Convenience. I'm not saying he's the only one, but he is the immediate best choice for this, and I'm so happy they went with him. Between that and Daniel Day Kim as Ozai, I have com- I have pretty good faith in the casting of this. I Again, I like the young actors. The more significant thing to me is the production dates. Like, it's one thing when we talk about castings. It's one thing when we talk about directors getting attached. It's another thing to hear that, no, like, cameras are rolling. They've set up stages. They're doing this. So that's more exciting to me that we could potentially get an early look as look at we could potentially get a look as early as, you know, late next year. So I'm excited to hear that. Guess with that, we could move into our quick hits. So um, would anybody want to volunteer as tribute to go first? Otherwise, I could do it. Uh, I'll go first. Sure. All right. Brandon, take it away. All right. Why do I never have my timer up these things? Okay. All right. Here's my quick hit. In three, two. So some of you may remember, some of you may be too young to remember, Halle Berry played Catwoman. It was bad. Um, but it's not the end of the story, actually, because while she did accept a Razzie on in person on her behalf of the performance, Halle Berry actually wants to remake Catwoman. Uh, she had an interview with a, a podcast recently where she talked about the idea of potentially remaking the film. She has actually just gotten her start as a director with her movie Bruise, which is on Netflix, I believe, this week. Uh, but she has gotten her start as a director uh, regardless. Here is what she had to say regarding that. Uh, I would love to direct Catwoman again. If I could get a hold of that now, knowing what I have with ex- with this experience and reimagine it the world and reimagine the story. Bruce was written for an Irish white Catholic 25-year-old girl and I got to reimagine it. I wish I could reimagine Catwoman the same way. I only want to bring this up because this comes after Leia Thompson, who starred in the original Howard the Duck movie, said she wanted to direct a remake of Howard the Duck. And I love the idea of specifically new female directors who get their chance to kind of redo their past projects. I thought it was a fascinating kind of coincidence and time. Right on the money. Jeez. <laughs> Good job. All right. Noah, you or me? Um, all you, Sam. Okay, cool. So then I will go ahead and get started in three, two one so my quick hit is just to give a quick shout out to a new documentary called julia it is out in theaters starting uh november 19th no 19th already passed so um oh no it did come out yeah duh we're recording on sunday i'm thrown off so now that i wasted that time julia is a really good documentary and it's the comfort food in you know the form of a documentary i wouldn't say it's the best of the year but it's it's plenty if you love food and like TV personalities that have to do with food um, because she was such a huge influence in it and on women. And I just thought it was a really nice documentary and it was really cool to see more on her personal relationships and her upbringing, too. No new information was really given, but it was presented in such a nice way. And it's from the same directors who brought um, RBG, that documentary together. And my name is Paul, Pauline Murray. So um, really good directors and uh, shout out to them and definitely check it out in theaters if you get the chance. And time, which has no meaning except for quick hits. Noah, on to yours. All right. Thank you. I will begin. 
Now, okay, I just want to give a major shout out to this animated series that is on Netflix. It is called Arcane. It pulls characters from the computer game uh, League of Legends, and it tells a story about two sisters and the city of Piltover, which is all about progress. Um, some of the major elements include magic, uh, technology. It's a very steampunky kind of world building there. Um, but what it tells you is a story of of two sisters um, facing like this, this huge rift in their lives and in their relationship because of a tragic accident that they experienced when they were children. And it influenced how they both were brought up in, in, in both of their, um, worlds. But all I can shout out is that Haley Steinfeld is one of the voice actresses. And, um, this has proven to be a very, um, uh, entertaining watch, uh, even if you're not an animated fan, even if you're not a gaming fan, seeing all of the effort in put into this artwork, put into these storylines. I'm so impressed. The third, I'm a little over a minute, <laughs> the third batch of episodes released this weekend. And if you have the time, please start that arcane series because, um, even if you're not an animation fan, like I said, just, you know, dive into it and expect, expect the least because you will walk out of it with a smile on your face. It tells such emotionally rich stories that I'm completely invested. And so that's why I had to take over a minute to talk about it. And time. It's over. that good. Um, <laughs> <And> time. <laughs> I will say, I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen ads for it recently. I was like, I've never heard of this, but I'm always interested in new Netflix animations that I know nothing about League of Legends. It's so great. And if you, just understand the character's kit, like their abilities in the game. It, it gives you those moments of like, oh, oh my gosh, this, this is because of the, oh. And those are the moments that I hope uh, all gamers are feeling when they watch this. And if you're not a gamer, hey, it's just an amazing show to watch as well. In exactly that language. Um, let's move on then to our new releases this week. We are going to start off with our release that we've been delaying for a couple uh, weeks now, actually, just because, again, our schedules have been maddening. Spencer, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about it. It's the new film from Pablo Lorraine starring Kristen Stewart as Diana, as Princess Diana of Wales. This takes place in December of 1991. I should actually add that Sam and I saw it. We're going to talk about it for you guys. But not actually real Christmas Eve in the UK. It's uh, we, get the, we get a title card at the start of the screen basically saying, these people lived, but this is kind of, you know, a fable. It's an idea of what might have happened at, during this holiday season. We follow uh, Diana. She's, you know, unfashionably late. She kind of does her own thing. She's been suffering with a potentially impending divorce from Prince Charles, uh, who in this movie is played by... I had the actress's name. I'm so sorry about this. Uh, Jack Farthing, I apologize, uh, who plays Prince Charles in there. We also have Timothy Swall as the sort of master of the house Gregory, based on uh, David Walker, who is an actual uh, staff member in the uh, in the royal's household, as well as Sean Harris, who is the royal chef, and Sally Hawkins, who plays Maggie, uh, Diana's trusted confidant and dresser. And essentially, the movie just follows this, you know, couple days worth of holidays where we get media coverage, we get uh, public scrutiny, we get private scrutiny, all wrapped within, you know, Diana's frame of mind at this time. We also see her relationship with her sons, as well as, you know, kind of the traditions of the royal court uh, established as well. Sam, I want to go over to you first. I, spoiler, I was buzzing about this, but I, so I was fascinated to know what you thought as well. And we briefly talked about it over text, but I want to get your thoughts. What did you think of Spencer? And um, again, the question we have to ask every time the season, what's the awards potential? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It, I think there are several um, pieces of awards potential in Spencer, but honestly, I was floored. I loved Spencer. Um, and maybe I'm biased just because I really like Pablo Lorraine. I, I loved Jackie. He's the same director for that movie. And I, there's something about his style that I just like. I mean, whether we're talking about the cinematography that has kind of like muted colors, but yet vibrant or 
I don't know if it's, you know, the focus on influential women as like the lead. Um, I don't know something about his style. I just really appreciate it. Uh, and so with Kristen Stewart, I, I feel like this is a career defining performance. I feel like I've, I've thought that a lot for a lot of the actors this year, but in like various movies and TV shows, but I'm, I'm standing by that. I think it's a really career defining move for her. And she absolutely has a nomination minimally for the Academy Awards. That's, that's just my opinion. And, and in my opinion, I feel like she deserves the, uh, the win the most. Um, so hot take. I don't know if anybody thinks that's a hot take or not, but I, I think that's, that she's great in it. And there were so many really good scenes that, kind of haunted me in a way for like days after I saw the movie and um, one that particularly didn't haunt me, but just made me think I love the game night scene. And if anybody had ever has seen um, Spencer, they would know what I'm talking about, but there's like the scene where she's with her sons and they're doing like a game night kind of away from the rest of the family in the middle of the night. And it's on Christmas Eve, I believe, but um, it's just, it's just such a nice scene and it just shows how much she cared about her sons. And it felt like a lot that she did, um, when she cared about anything at all, it was her, her sons, you know? Um, so between that scene and I feel like the metaphors, I don't want to give away too any specifics with spoilers, but like near the end, there's a very on the nose metaphor and it's kind of teased throughout this, um, this movie about pheasants. But um, I feel like the ending really wrapped it well, symbolically. And um, I, I thought that that was beautiful, very on the nose, but it was well written in my opinion. And the music, the score, oh my gosh. And Brandon, I'll, I'll leave that to Brandon because he's great with remembering the names, but the score is so hauntingly different that I feel like that's also going to get nominated. Um, so so those are kind of my ideas. Uh, I, I could also see director Pablo Lorraine getting it, but at the same time, that's stacked right now. So I have no idea if he would actually get the nomination, but here's hoping just because I like him. But um, yeah, between those and cinematography, probably costume, I'm sure costume, it might get a nod. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it was a really good movie. So if you get the chance, go check it out. But it could be potentially a slow burn for some. I think you're underselling this a little bit. This is my second favorite movie of the year. Uh, I think this is tremendous. I think what Pablo, and here's the thing. I was not the biggest fan of Jackie. I liked a lot of it. I adored Natalie Portman in the movie. I thought there were structural issues with it. I felt that, again, it could be the slow burn that I think you, that I think you would agree this is. This is a slow burn, but it doesn't feel like it. Like I agree completely. I maybe checked my phone once when it was like at the last five minutes and then I realized the movie was ending. It flies by and you have to start with Kristen Stewart. She is you can't use the twilight defense anymore you simply can't i mean oh, yes, of Maria, still alice this blows all of them out of the water you are so in tune with her mentality and her focus and her poise but also her very clearly on the break on the on the brink of a breakdown amongst scales and stakes and structures that will never that will seemingly never fall and she has to either adhere to them or just you know leave and i love the the constant pressure of it all is nail biting and it's palpable. And Pablo Lorraine sinks into like every second of it. But like the supporting cast is great. Like Timothy Spall has some great moments in there. Um, oh God, I'm what Sally Hawkins as Maggie has some great moments, including maybe one of the most tender, likable moments of the movie. Um, you're you're absolutely right. The stuff with her sons is pure and lovely. And I think it's the thing that brings the most humanity to the project. I adore I won't spoil the ending, I won't dare spoil it. But I think it is one of the best endings to a film I've seen in a while because it is both haunting and incredibly optimistic. I couldn't believe that they nailed the match of tones that well. On a technical level, 
Johnny Greenwood is having a year between this and Power of the Dog, which we're going to talk about uh, in a couple of weeks. Oh my God, his score is phenomenal. I love it, love it so much. Um, and Licorice Pizza, actually, which we're going to talk about uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks as well. I completely forgot about that. Um, and, what a year for him. Jeez. Right? I know. He's that good. Um, and that's not even getting his radio head if they release something this year, rumored. Um, and then, you know, Claire Mathen, who, un- who unceremoniously was not nominated for cinematography for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She better get it for this because there are shots in this that are just breathtakingly stunning. There's this there's this total like haze over everything and it matches like the tones of everything. It, it almost enhances some of the colors when they really pop, like some of the dresses or the chandeliers. There's such great pleasure in, you know, lighting, technicality. And I could go on and on about this movie. There's so, so much I adore about it. You're right. At the end of the day, it's a bit of a slow bird. It's a bit tedious at times. But if you can really get into it, oh, my God, there is so much to explore and love and get angry about, but also passionate about a little bit. I adore this movie. And, and honestly, you're absolutely right that I was underselling it because it, it actually is one of my like top three movies of the year. And so I, I, I don't know why I'm muted, maybe just because I'm still waking up and stuff. But like, I completely agree with all your thoughts. It's just it's such an amazing movie. So, yeah, no, if you get the chance, you should absolutely go see it. And, and we can't recommend it enough <laughs> so in a theater if you can, but it'll be coming to VOD, I'm sure, by the end of December. Uh, let's move on into our ratings. Uh, I'm giving this a very strong nine and a half for me. I, again, I think this is tremendous on all accounts. I think you absolutely need to see this if for no other reason than Kristen Stewart, not just for the Oscar buzz, which apparently she doesn't care about, like go read that interview. It's actually hilarious. But if you ever doubted her ever, she, she will blow you away in this along with everything else that Pablo Lorraine and company have dealt with. It is a singular vision. And I adored it. Yeah. It, we're, we're in the exact same wavelength. It's a nine and a half for me. All right. And so I think that'll do it for our Spencer review. And um, we're going to go ahead and move on to Ghostbusters Afterlife. I am very, very excited to hear what Brandon has to say. So uh, go ahead and take it away, Brandon. Well, first, I just want to ask the panel here. uh, Are you guys Ghostbusters fans? Because I want to get that out of the way. I'm a very casual Ghostbusters fan. I actually barely saw all the Ghostbusters three years ago. That was the first time I'd ever seen them. Loved, loved, loved the first one. So um, for what it's worth, very casual fan. Yeah, I would call myself a fan. I think ever since I saw the Puff Puff Marshmallow Man, Michelin Man, uh, I've been a I've been a fan, and I've always regarded the series as like being very entertaining. Uh, I did see the remake as well a couple years back with Melissa McCarthy. I only have to ask because I know that since the remake, for better or worse, the Ghostbusters fandom has been iffy, at least to me. Um, especially considering the fact that you know, looking around the corner of my eye for snipers. I've never loved Ghostbusters. I don't know. It it just never appealed to me. Dude, the sniper comment. <laughs> Big Brother's not, always watching, you know. <laughs> Big Brother's always watching. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's always watching in his ghost corpse. Um, I Here's the thing. I like the first Ghostbusters movie. I do. But I was very curious to see about this. So what do we get with Ghostbusters Afterlife? It is essentially a sequel to the original two Ghostbusters, kind of acknowledging that 2016 never happened, the Paul Peake movie. So we get the sequel. Uh, Jason Reitman comes in to direct from his father, uh, Ivan Reitman, who did the first two. It stars uh, Carrie Coon, McKenna Grace, and Finn Wolfhard as a family moving out from the big city to this nowhere town in Somerville, Oklahoma, where their grandfather has left them this creepy old farmhouse. Uh, when they get to town, everyone kind of knows their grandfather is like the dirt farmer, or, you know, the hermit or, you know, but there's there's kind of mythology built up around like who the grandfather is. 
if you've seen some of the marketing, you've kind of a good idea of who the grandfather is, but just in case I won't spoil it here. We primarily follow McKenna Grace as Phoebe. She is kind of a, you know, social outcast. She's very kind of dark humored, you know, kind of in her own world, but, you know, love science. We have Finn Wolfhard, who is the son, you know, sort of traditional, you know, you don't understand me parents kind of son. And then we have Carrie Coon, who is basically just trying to make ends meet, who is trying to go through her father's stuff. She was abandoned by their grandfather. She doesn't really have a great relationship with him uh, since he has passed away. And we just kind of follow them. We also have Paul Rudd, who pops up as uh, McKenna Grace's science teacher. We have Logan Kim as podcast. Yes, that's his name, who has a podcast, who is a classmate of Phoebe's. And we also have uh, Celeste O'Connor, who plays a potential love interest for Finn Wolfhard's character. Uh, as kind of one of the employees of the diner, her dad is the sheriff, played by Bokeem Woodbine. And there are some cameos from the remaining ghost prison there. Story, as a result, is essentially that Spooky things happen in this town. We need to find out why Ghostbusters things are tied in. Basically, that's the movie. Um, again, go into the idea that I have never been that big of a fan of a Ghostbusters uh, as a property or as a mythology. I got to say, I was actually really impressed by this. I was also really angry at this because it's so close to being great. And I'll get into why in a second. The first two thirds of this, I think, are really good. I think as a family drama, as, you know, a study about, you know, ch children of divorce and children of, you know, abused families and, you know, kids trying to find their way in the world, it actually works as a really, it felt like an indie film a lot of the times. Like a lot of the sets feel small. A lot of the effects work feels small. And that goes to the Ghostbusters mythology as well. Like, yes, there's, you know, uh, there's like ghost trappers and, you know, the, the icons of, you know, the, um, uh, the Ecto-1 and, you know, all the things that, you know, for the franchise – but they're not in your face. They are there. And Jason Reitman, I feel like, is committed, along with Gil Keenan, who wrote the script with him. They have this idea to kind of rebuild the Ghostbusters mythology from as scratch as possible. Thus, you know, the characters and the setting and everything. And it really works. I was really impressed at how much it, you know, I actually felt while watching this. Like, all the characters, I think, are really well-developed. I love McKenna Grace in this. Um, I've been a fan of hers for a long time since, you know, Gifted, maybe even before that. But I think her as a performer just owns this. Like, there's a scene where she's in kind of, like, the gunner seat that you've seen in the trailer of her in the Ecto-1, and she's so badass, and she's, like, 15 or 16 years old, and I just love it. Um, Paul Rudd is delightful in this. Carrie Coon has some great moments. I won't reveal, you know, all of the surprises in there, but there are, if you're a fan of the franchise, like, oh, they brought this thing back, and this is tied into this mythology from the first movie. And again, it's Reitman kind of, you know... Sexiest Man Alive, Paul Rudd. How could I forget, Noah? Thank you for reminding me. Um, You know, that kind of thing of, you know, Yes, there's mythology and iconization to the Ghostbusters, but it's not worshipping of them. Until the third act. And what I say about the third act is that there's a scene towards the second half of the movie where it's McKenna Grace's character and a character from the original Ghostbusters. And it's actually a great scene, but I insist that it should have been the end of the movie because it, it's a great way of tying together the ideas that McKenna Grace's character and her family have been facing with the, you know, the kind of abandonment issues from the first generation of Ghostbusters. Like, it's a great way of tying that together. And then it happens. And I just kept thinking to myself, now it's going to be a Ghostbusters sequel. And sure enough, then you get, you know, all the references and the characters and the, you know, the plot building again. And once it does that, I was far less impressed. And I just thought to myself, you were so close. It, this was so investing. And I was really getting, you know, excited about it. And then it just completely drops the ball. And I was just disappointed by it. So overall, at the end of the day, I appreciate what Jason Reitman does with this. I know there's been discussions of like, oh, is Jason Reitman even a good filmmaker? I think he very much is. Uh, and I think I would definitely put this up as a good film. It's a very strong 7.5 out of 10 for me. Again, the new characters work great. The world building is really much better than I anticipated. 
and the effects work too. But again, when it becomes a Ghostbuster sequel and a legacy Ghostbuster sequel, I think it just falls on its face. So take it as you will. If you're a fan of the franchise and you've been dying to see this, you'll find it much more enjoyable than I did. I just had my issues with it. All right. So thank you so much for that review, Brandon. Um, we will now move on to our last movie in the dock. We were all very, very excited about Tick, Tick, Boom. So uh, this is the movie musical that is starring Andrew Garfield. And so Noah, do you have the synopsis for us? Yes, I do. Okay. So I have been anticipating Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, part of our musical theater corner that we keep returning to. Oh, not musical theater. I'm still in the lightning thief. Sorry. Um, I'm thinking of our uh musical movie adaptations so here we have um tick tick boom which is the first from uh, jonathan larson who is credited uh even on the marketing material it says the creator of rent so rent is a very popular musical um that i'm sure plenty of our listeners um, are already familiar with but jonathan larson created tick tick boom um as that first project so i was unfamiliar with it but pretty much the story follows jonathan in his 29th year he is grappling with the fact that he is really comparing himself to other stars of his time and comparing the fact that he's about to turn 30 it's actually the opening song uh, comparing the fact that he's about to turn 30 and he feels like his life has not amounted to the success and to the stardom that he had imagined for himself and so the in the movie places um, his personal relationships his professional relationships um, just directly in front of him and he's really asking himself in from the beginning to the end you know what can I become? And so what that means for the story is he's writing a is his, he's writing a new musical that he wants to see adapted into a Broadway show. So he's trying to put together a workshop and he wants to get the workshop paid for. He wants to get it approved. Um, being a struggling artist, he's struggling with money. And so all it means for him is to get that workshop going so that he can get a producer to see it. And then that can be adapted into into a Broadway show. So. Not all of the songs from the original musical are used in the movie, but there are plenty that are, which uh, do show up in the musical. It also, it stars Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson. It has um, other stars as well. We see Alexandra Ship, who we know as Storm, um, or at least I know for as Storm from the X-Men movies. And we have Vanessa Hudgens appearing in this movie. Uh, Robin DeJesus is uh, Jonathan Larson's um roommate slash like very close friend who uh impacts his life plenty throughout the story so sorry if that felt long-winded um i am definitely a fan of tick tick boom um i guess the first thing i want to say out the gate is that i wasn't expecting andrew garfield to carry this movie in the way that he did um Jonathan Larson is such an eccentric character and such a believer in his artistic dream that uh, I see so many, I see so many qualities in him that uh, I immediately believe because of the way that Andrew Garfield was playing him. I think since the Spider-Man films, I haven't really seen a lot of Garfield. Um, but you know, I just out the gate, I wanted to show praise to Garfield. So, uh, I'll, I'll have this conversation with Brandon because we did both see it. So Brandon, what did you think of Garfield's performance in this movie? Sam also saw it and I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this specifically. Uh, I'm sorry. I think you are underplaying Garfield in this. He is tremendous. And I, I don't want to be, you know, a fanboy two films in a row, but you know, after Kristen Stewart and Oscar was for this and Andrew Garfield for this, but he's so good. And every time I think Andrew Garfield cannot impress me even more. He does something like Tammy Faye or he does something like Hacksaw Ridge or, oh, um, what was it? Under the Silver Lake, I believe it was called from a couple of years ago with uh, Riley Keough. He does something like that. And I just think 
oh god this guy's so adventurous as an actor and he's just so good at it and then he does something like this where every emotion is turned up to 11 and he owns all of it and he is somehow able to convey you know so much subtlety and yet so much eccentricity as well and i was just so impressed by his mix in this he controls the screen just as kristen stewart does in spencer but i think the sporting cast too like i think alexander ship is quite good in this robin de jesus who i was not super familiar with but i think he's really quite good in this uh mj rodriguez pops up as a diner owner she's a lot of fun uh and again the songs are great women Miranda knows how to direct musical numbers and i was surprised at the choices he makes for this i'm surprised that he decided to go more, you know, cinematic film reel versus, you know, choreographed stage productions at a lot of points. Uh, minus one great one with Vanessa Hudgens, which I was really impressed by the choreography for. Um, at the end of the day, it's a little cliched. Like, it's a movie about, you know, following your dreams and, you know, coming up against all obstacles. And, and it feels like that. Like, if you've seen any kind of theatrical production with those kind of themes in it, I think you'll find it a bit, you know, tepid a little bit. But, oh, my God, I was just so invested in the story. I think Jonathan Larson, as you said, Noah, is such a fascinating character, and I love how they present him here. And there is a tragedy to the end. Like, I think there is this kind of, like, again, I, I say the themes are, you know, a bit, uh, are a bit, you know, trite, as I say, but... I think the way that they're portrayed, I think there is such an underlying penny of tragedy and, you know, a mix of optimism in there that I was just really invested in. So kudos to Lin-Manuel. I didn't think the added in him and uh, Andrew Garfield put him in the Oscar race. Yeah. And I feel like my thoughts kind of line up with you as well, Brandon. It's just like, it, it, I thought it was really cool to see something from Lin-Manuel Miranda for directing this. And I... I don't think I liked the music as much as most people. I, I personally feel like the last half was so, so strong. And um, the beginning for me, it took a little bit for me to get invested. And I'm, I'm not really sure exactly what it is at the moment. I'm still stewing on my thoughts. But um, I, I think that Andrew Garfield, no matter what, though, is also phenomenal in it. And especially, again, you see a lot of that raw acting in, in like the last half. And I thought that it was just really amazing to see this kind of story. Yes, it, it is very cliche in a way. I thought it was a bit more cliche, I think, than than this party thought overall. But um, it, it didn't really ding many points for me, though, because it was still something I was looking for and expecting and got. And I was really happy to see it. Um, so overall, I thought it was really fun. And especially with our, our diner scene, if anybody has seen the movie, they will know. You got to look out for that because that is just like a musical theater goldmine. <laughs> so many different cameos. So definitely um, keep an eye out um, for that scene. But um, my personal favorite is just near the end when he's singing a song about him and his friend. That's all I'm giving for spoilers. But that I think was like the standout scene of the movie. And I was really, I, I, you know, I'm really happy for Andrew Garfield and Lin-Manuel Brand on this project. So Yes. One thing I wanted to add is just that Jonathan Larson's character, his really, he really is his own opposition. Like, yes, he struggles to find funding. Yes. He struggles to, um, figure out, uh, how he can balance his, uh, romantic relationships along with his friends. But I think that because his obstacles are his own, you're really on this journey with an individual while you're watching the movie. And for, and for people who are, um, you know, facing the same struggle of, of wishing to create or pushing themselves to the limits of their creativity and to their, um, and to what they want out of life. Like this, this movie just really speaks volumes into how you can regard your time, how you can really I don't know, respect your work, uh, knowing the, knowing when you created, uh, I don't know if that, if that, uh, came out the right way, but I just, I, I found it like such, such a rewarding experience, especially because I'm still writing my, my musical theater high because, you know, the show just wrapped and we, and we talk about, um, these musical adaptations pretty frequently. So, uh, I was so happy to see this. Um, I'm ready for star ratings if you are Brandon. 
Yeah, I will. I'll go first. I think this is easily an eight and a half for me. Again, I think for as, you know, for as unoriginal as it can feel, I think the originality of both Larson as a character, Garfield's performance and Limamo's Miranda's, again, I think restrained directing. And I again, I use that word restrained because I do think he took a step back in this and I'm really impressed by that. Between those three, it's incredibly impressive and it's just fun. Like, again, it's that movie that I, I tweeted out my reaction about, like, if you've ever been told no from your dreams or you've ever been turned down or rejected or ignored, like, this movie will resonate with you in some way. And the, the character of Larson... And that journey that he goes on, and I, I like how you mentioned the term, you know, relatable and, you know, kind of the through line of it all. I completely agree with that. I think it permeates the entire film, and it's very, it's a very easy film to like, and it's a very easy film to get into the subtleties of, especially if you are a theater nerd, of which I am not, so I've only liked it to a certain degree. But again, I totally recommend it, if not just for Garfield. And I am the theater nerd. I gave this a 10. This is perfect. I, I, I was so emotional watching this. It was beautiful. I hope Andrew Garfield gets the recognition and Lin Manuel gets the recognition they both deserve because, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the experience to, uh, to have this, um, premiere when it did. For me, I would probably give it like an eight and a lot of it rides on like production design, cinematography. Andrew Garfield and Manuel Miranda. That's where it rides in a lot for me. And and honestly, I also forgot to mention something real quick. I also thought that the score was really neat. Like, not just the music itself, which I know that it for me personally, it wasn't that catchy, but I still respect it. So, um, but I also had that, yeah, the score was really good too. So overall, eight for me. Yeah, like it took me a while to get used to like the cadence of Larson because like every syllable is paced out and, you know, that kind oh, of Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, that'll wrap our movie segment. So we will now move into our elusive TV to be named segment. So <laughs> we will go ahead and start with Cowboy Bebop. I unfortunately did not get to it. So I'm very, very looking forward to hearing our pilot reviews from Brandon and Noah. So um, Brandon, why don't we get started with um, your opinion first and any mini synopsis you can give. Cowboy Bebop, how to describe you? Um, okay, I'm sure there's some of you out there who are familiar with, you know, the original, or at least have heard of the original, the original anime from the 90s that kind of, you know, that kind of turned the anime community, that's I should say, revolutionized Toonami, you know, all this great stuff, you know. And now we are getting a live-action adaptation from Netflix, a show ran by uh, Andre Namek, with the cast of John Cho, Mustafa Shakir, uh, Daniela Pineda as the iconic characters, Spike Spiegel, Jeff Black, Faye Valentine, takes place about 160, 170 years in the future. Uh, we basically focus on this crew of this ragtag ship called the Bebop, and things ensue. There's not really an overarching plot. There kind of is with Spike and his rival Vicious, who in this is played by Alex Hassel. Uh, there's kind of a thing with a the dog. There's kind of a thing with other characters, but it's mainly just these bounty hunters going about through this, you know, newly colonized galaxy primarily through jupiter and mars and you know the whole solar system and you know defeating bad guys and running into weird noir pastiches and western pastiches and all of the weirdness that the original cowboy bebop had uh no i want to go over to you first how familiar are with are you with the original series because i just finished it literally a couple nights ago before i tuned into this um so i want to get your thoughts on that and then going into the first episode of this does it dare i ask live up to expectations how can you live up to no expectation? I mean, I have not seen the original <laughs> series. Uh, so I'm entering this with a kind of, um, with a naive experience that, uh, some of our listeners may have, but I found this to be a very pleasurable, um, pilot because of, um, and I'm just looking at my notes real quick. Uh, John Cho. I remember comments, uh, from earlier in production. John Cho had explained that when he was casted, he was a little worried because he was feeling like, um, 
like audiences may feel that he was too old for the role, but uh, th- that kind of like took me back because I'm like, oh, like how would you? Why would you feel that way? Because as soon as you see him on screen, I just think he embodies that fun and very casual, laid back character uh, so well. And to get a new team that reminds me of, you know, I'm not calling them the Guardians, but they remind me of the Guardians of the Galaxy because it's it has that space element, it has that um, hilarious element of them not always they're not do-gooders they're just here to get the job done and i like seeing that from this team um i know that having seen the the first fight in like the casino it made me immediately go i wonder if this is like straight from the anime because it did just feel so fun and so like comical in the style that they were fighting and the way that the action scenes are um, shot and edited like um, there are some new tricks being made here like I particularly liked when he cartwheels and punches over one of his um, one of the people that they knock out in that casino fight scene and so um, you know this isn't I'm not like you know, the champion for the Cowboy Bebop series, but I know I'm going to continue watching it. Like uh, I'm particularly interested in um, this galactic element and uh, I'll watch anything that has that kind of sci-fi twist to it. So, you know, how, how, what was your immediate reaction? Because you did watch the original series. Yeah, it's funny because when I finished it, my immediate reaction was cool. And I know my reaction was supposed to be, this is amazing because it's Cowboy Bebop. Um, and I, I completely acknowledge the respect that that series has. Like, it is unlike anything I've ever seen. Its world building is unlike anything I've ever seen. The characters are, you know, super unique and super quirky and super great. Obviously a template for like every big sci-fi property that came afterwards. And I'll, I'll admit, I was a bit hesitant about this when I saw that first teaser. Like it looked cool, but it also looked very much like kind of, you know, a kind of charity short of like, let's make a live action cowboy bebop. Like, don't these actors look the same? Like, duh, 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 duh. Um, and I will fully admit the series is a bit like that. I, for all of the negative press I've been hearing from this, and there are a lot of negative reactions, I will certainly concede with this. It's a lot like the anime, and it worships at the altar of the anime. Um, all the action sequences, they feel like they're trying to replicate, you know, hand drawn animation, or they're trying to replicate, you know, kind of rotoscoping or things like that. And there's a neatness to that. Like there is this kind of weird blockiness to a lot of it that I kind of appreciated. Um, the cast is great. Like I love John Cho in this. Mustafa Shakir is an amazing jet black. Uh, Danielle Pineda. I know people had some problems with her when she was in this cast. She's awesome in this. Like she has some of the best F-bombs in the series so far. Again, it's just in the pilot, but I love her dialogue in this. Um, again, I'm not sure how they're going to take the overarching story because again, in the original, there wasn't really one. Uh, so I'm not sure how they're going to take that because there's a lot of, you know, kind of going with the flow existentialism that I don't think the show is quite tackled in the same way yet. Uh, and I would consider that a negative as well. Like, I wish they would go more deep into that. But again, it's just the pilot. The music still slaps. The cast is still great. It's still the same characters and ideas of it. I appreciate it for what it was, but I am more than willing to just keep my expectations tepid for the other nine episodes. I think sitting through the first episode, you can usually, you can usually judge a show and go, okay, am I going to stick with this or am I not? And for, it was surprising when I hopped on the pod this morning and I learned from you both that, you know, the critical response has been kind of negative because after the first episode, I, I'm going to stick with this and I do want to finish it and, um, you know, come back and, and reveal the tell all once we get to the finale. But, um, yeah, I mean, this was, uh, we don't usually do ratings for the first episodes, but this was a thumbs up for me. I, I would also give it a very tentative play. And I should also add, even if you have not seen the original, see the original, but it, it is on Netflix and Hulu if you want to watch it. But this is on here on Netflix right now. I think you can get into it without having any context of the original. Okay, so we can go ahead and uh, move on to our next TV uh, show. We have a wrap-up from a earlier episode where we introduced the show Dope Sick on Hulu. Um, Sam and Brandon are here to uh, tell us how that show finally wrapped up. 
So last time we talked about Dope Sick, it feels like an eternity ago. We briefly talked about the first three episodes of the Danny Strong series, of course, based on the Beth Macy novel, uh, who also wrote the third episode. I forgot to mention that at the time. I thought that was interesting. Sam and I wrapped up the remainder of the series. Uh, it's been long. It's been arduous. It's been anger-inducing. Sam, I want to go over to you. Uh, what have you thought about the series up to this point, and what have some, been some of your standout moments as a result? Yeah, for this series, you know, as a whole, I think that it was a really, really strong series. Again, Hulu did the thing where I didn't expect much from a series. Like I had no expectations and I walk in and I'm like, wow, this is really important to see. And so when we last left off, I, I was really hooked because if I remember correctly, we left off on an episode in which um, Michael Keaton's character, Sam Phoenix, actually got in a car accident and they were prescribing oxycodone to him. And it's the drug that he's been prescribing to his entire town, basically. And so us with the knowledge and the audience knowing, no, don't do it. Don't do it. That was a pretty good cliffhanger for us personally, I think, to end on. And then since we finished the series, you know, I think the story really carried from there, like very quickly, in my opinion. But so much happens from that point. I mean, we start to see more of the investigation from, but um, you see more of their investigation. You see a bit more of what Rosario Dawson's up to as well as Bridget Meyer. And um, I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't work more together. Like they kind of did indirectly, but I'm surprised we didn't have more scenes with them together. Um, but then, you know, we also see a little bit about um, Billy, who is also the salesman for Oxycodone for Pharma. Um, and he's played by Will Poulter. And I think he's phenomenal. Again, if people think of him as just the kid from We're the Millers, he's phenomenal in the show. And to be real, I mean, are we going to go into spoilers or are we... I think we can go into spoilers at this point. Okay. So for those of you who don't want to hear spoilers, uh, letting you know from this point on, we are in a spoiler zone. So, um, we, we'll, are, we both enjoyed it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so then with, um, with Will, he, his character, I knew he was going to be like the whistleblower, you know, in a way, like not necessarily testifying, but definitely going to do something. I knew that he wasn't going to sign the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement. I knew he was going to do something influential. So neat. Um, And so we just see a lot going on from like, kind of like the downfall of some of the characters we've grown to know who were addicted to oxycodone, like Caitlin Deaver, as always is amazing. And that was unfortunate. Betsy passed. And then um, you also see a little bit of healing for Sam Phoenix. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of glad with the way the series ended that he didn't per se get his license back, but he found a new way to bring healing to people in the, you know, in a way that's more mental rather than prescriptive or um, physical health. So I I thought it was a fitting ending. Um, But like, you know, I'm just kind of jumping all over the place. So much happened. Lots of information happened in each thing. And of course the Sacklers suck. So, uh, you know, I'd like to hear more from Brandon's side because I just gave some general points that stood out to me, but I, I know that, Brandon also liked it too. So uh, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Funny thing is I didn't think, uh, I didn't think Billy was going to be the whistleblower because I thought the way they were pacing out the series was, you know, that it seemed like every so often there was another reason to, to sign the NDA or to not, you know, or to not take the deal, I should say, because I, I felt like the series was just building us towards that. Just, this is just an impossible thing. And by the end of the series, there is still that idea of how just monumentally impossible all of this feels but I, I'll admit, I was a little bit shocked when they, 
I wasn't shocked when he took the tapes like that. I figured would happen, but I thought that was more of a red herring to be like, no, I took the tapes, but I couldn't go because it's the Sacklers. Like, what are you going to do? Um, so that was, I think, a pleasant surprise. Um, also, his relationship with um, uh, with Grace, I thought was interesting. I thought she evolved as a really interesting character. Towards the end, like <laughs> they try to make her likable by being like, oh yeah, I have feelings for you. I'm like, no, like, no, that's not nice how this try. Works. That ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah, like you have a good like you have like a cool like oh i i wish she hadn't left look at the end and i'm like yeah i still don't like you but but good on cleopatra coleman she did a fantastic job in this um i my prediction was right caitlin deaver broke my heart um she's once again tremendous in this and i i cannot believe that we are not talking about her more as beautiful i i hear so many attentions around you know uh, around michael keaton and rosario dawson and will poulter and all of them are insanely good and everyone's insanely good in this i think but I think Caitlin Deaver is the heart of the show. She is, you know, they, they even use the example of, and I'll get to that in my negatives a little bit. They even use the example with the meeting between uh, the church group and the Sacklers of like showing the picture of Betsy as like, this is the poster child of our movement. That and scene like, is so good. It is. But it also highlights one of my neg, which is that, again, the show isn't subtle. Like for as much stuff as there is in the show and for as fast paced as it goes and as many points of view as it has, None of it I felt was that subtle. Like, it's all very in your face. It's all, you know, legal jargon. It's all, you know, drug terms and like that. And that can be a hindrance. And I did feel at certain times that like it was. But again, I was just so cheeky. I was so freaking enraptured by what it was going for that I was just, I didn't care. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And, um, you know, if we're talking in the negatives too, this sounds so funny. It's a very minor negative, but... I am still not a fan of Peter Sarsgaard in this. I, and I, really? I think it's, yeah, it's, I, I feel bad to say it too. I don't know what kind of coaching that the director wanted to do with Rick Mountcastle as a character, right? Maybe yeah. I have a problem with the character, but I just, that flat mouth emotion that Peter has all the time on his face bothers me so much. Cause to me, I feel like I've only seen that emotion, like where you see a shirt where it's like star Wars and like Darth Vader's emotions, happy, sad. And it's like oh. the mask. That's it. I feel like he has the same facial expression and everything. And I'm just like, aren't you kind of surprised to see this former pharma secretary, like, like basically, you know, having a relapse in a hospital and you have that same flat face expression. Like, I don't know why it's such a nitpicky thing, but I mean, it's, it, like otherwise his delivery is great on things. It's just his facial, his physical acting is kind of bothering me. <laughs> and I'm sorry to be a hater. I, I'm so sorry about that, but yeah, yeah totally. But I, I almost forgot because you brought up more performances. The one that we didn't mention was Michael Stuhlbarg, who descends. Oh, yeah. In, who descends even deeper into James Bond territory and who is somehow feels completely plausible like they they make all of the sackler moments of the office even though you're looking at it and going this is facetious and insane and could not possibly be and yet there is more than enough evidence obviously in real life to back it up but within the context of the series it's very much just like no this is just how these people think and how their weird family dynamics happens and stuhlbarg is the center of it oh absolutely yeah between that and then um Goodness, there's another scene. I'm trying to think of what it is. Just fourth wall break, and I'll clap this I, back I, in. I was thinking the scene where they appoint him president, and like the whole kind of like secession thing of just like the, the dad trying to like beat up the uncle. And I was like, that's. It's like no, that's just how they are. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good scene too. Yeah, you're talking about when they were voting for president, right? Yeah, yeah, that that was a really really good scene. Oh goodness, there, there was a lot, and um. You know, between all that there was to unpack, I think that the show did a really good job in delivering this message, though. Uh, this this story on 
corruption and one of the richest families in the world for all the wrong reasons. And I, I think it did a good job on focusing on very specific characters, like making, you know, Betsy the martyr here. And so I, I think that, you know, the story in terms of that was really good. There is. And I think there's something to be said about a show like Dope Sick because, you know, I, I heard a lot of chatter online of just like, please end this, you know, in some kind of positive way. Like the real world is already, you know, terrible enough as it is. And the implications of Sackwars are terrible enough as it is. And you're right. Like you brought up the ending with um, with uh, Samuel's character about how, you know, kind of just you got to keep going forward and doing what you can and that kind of thing. And on the one hand, I agree to the show's message that it kind of goes for, you know, I'm forgetting the exact quote, but I think it's like remembering the people who lost the war, but won the battles kind of deal. I think that was the quote. Yeah. Yeah. That's very close to it. Yeah, Along the same lines. And I could see people taking that as, well, it shouldn't be placed on them. The, the implication of the series is that the system is broken and needs to be torn down. And I can totally see that being a thing and being a letdown for certain people. But I also think for a show that has I think for a show like Dope Sick, the secret that Danny Strong has put in is that it is specifically framed around individuals. You know, like, yes, the systems are there to prop up the Sacklers and to downgrade, you know, the Appalachian communities. But at the end of the day, the story is about, you know, Richard Sackler and about Samuel Phoenix and about Betsy Davis and about all these characters. So I kind of appreciated the message towards the end, even if it is not, you know, one way or the other that I... It's not as dark or as optimistic as I would like it to go. It is very much a murmur, but I think it very much reflects the ideas of the show. That also reminded me another point, um, kind of piggybacking off of that. I I still also wasn't a fan of the timeline because the the way that things were told, I like it. And I, I, I think that the writing was good. It's just for me, I easily got confused between the time jumps to and from, and they make it clear like what year these events following are in, but I think it's super easy to forget when they were, especially when we're bouncing back and forth. And at times it, it absolutely made sense. I like it. I just wish that there was a more obvious way to show that they were in different time zones, like or time frame, excuse me, kind of like as an example off the top of my head, hate you give, Anything that was in the past had like kind of a bluish tone, if I remember correctly. And anything that was in the present had like a warm tone, like kind of like a yellowish filter over the cinematography. So, yeah, like that makes it very easy for me to remember. Oh, that that's cool. And I don't mean to sound like a dimwit, but it was just easy for me to spell out. And I imagine that some people probably felt the same way I did, where it kind of bounced a lot in the in the past and in the present. I would argue it becomes an issue, one, with the finale. I think the finale, because it. You know, it jumps forward 15 years to 2019. And I think once you see those characters in that context, you think, okay, wait, there's 15 years of context in this that we didn't go over. Ha! And so there's that. But beyond that, I think there's also the Rosario Dawson character, who is great. But I feel like for whatever reason, her plot line and again, her relationship to uh, to Rick and Randy, I think that kind of thing that felt jarring to me because it should be one of those things where they are working together more often. They should have more interaction. You know, the, uh, the DA from Arizona, like, I feel like he should have been more intersectional with the, with the characters as well. And I felt like that character was the epicenter of the timeline mismanagement, which I think works very well, but you're right. That is the epicenter of it. And you wonder like, and this is always why it's fun to discuss movies and TV and media, because it's like, was that on purpose to show how flawed the system is that they didn't work together as closely as we thought they would have? Like, I, I don't know what their plan was. Would love to see some production notes, but, but yeah, like I was really surprised that we didn't see more of the legal characters together or like, you know, law enforcement characters together. Which is interesting because 
I found myself because I, I remember when we were talking about the initial episodes, I found myself more interested in the Appalachia stuff. And yet, as we were getting into the last two episodes, I found the legalese stuff the most interesting. Like it reminded yeah. me of the stuff that I loved from um did you did you watch the report with Adam Driver? I did, yes. <laughs> it reminded me of why I loved that film. So it reminded me of that kind of pacing of, you know, building every single step on top of each other. Yes, it's, you know, in a language I don't speak, but in, you know, the kind of thing that I think the emotional with the emotional withstanding of it all is still there. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really good comparison. So, um, yeah, did you have any other questions or not questions, but any other comments? Because um, otherwise, I think I think I'm good with a series review uh, or a series ranking rating. I, I can't I talk to... today, fam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, neither can I. I'm, I'm funny. Um, but no, the, it is such a it is such a dense show. It might be one of the dense, most densely packed shows I've watched in a while. I'm not sure about you, but I think for, I think for what it is, I think it's admirable if incredible if imperfect in a lot of regards, but I think also incredibly necessary for the story it's trying to tell. Yeah, I completely agreed. And so I, I guess having said that, for me overall with the series, I'd say it's a solid like eight, honestly. It just And it's only dinged because of those things I've mentioned before. Otherwise, it, definitely recommend it. I feel like everyone should see it because of how important it is with like the, the, like the opioid and drug abuse crisis that America faces even still today. And so it's just, in my opinion, one of those essential watches to give you more context on a, you know, like on a, an epidemic on the country. I'm going to go slightly higher. I'm going to say 8.5. I think for a show that tries to address at least three decades, if not more, of, you know, a substance abuse issue that has only in recent years really gained international attention, I think it is incredibly admirable what Danny Strong and his team do here. Uh, I think the performances across the board are stellar. I think it looks great. I think pacing-wise, even for as long as the episodes are, I found myself consistently enthralled at whatever approach it decided to take, whether it was corporate or more uh, intimate or more legalese, like whichever avenue it went, I was constantly fascinated. And I think that goes to a credit of, again, the research that went into this, but also the appreciation for the stories that make it up. And that'll do it for episode 14 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for today. Uh, again, no directorial debut. We're not really extending the episode longer than we need to today. Taking a cue out of, you know, probably an appropriate playbook, but we're also going to Thanksgiving and we really need to run. Uh, specifically, I need to run. But anyways, if you want to follow us any further, do us a favor. Go to Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, check the, uh, circle, yeah. do us a favor. Go to Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, search in plot devices and click follow on both. You'll get updates on that. Uh, if you turn notifications on on both, you'll get new episodes later every Sunday, uh, potentially early Monday, depending on when I can get to them, because I'm only human, gosh darn it. Also, you can follow us on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. I want to thank again the rest of the panel for joining me today. First of all, fresh off of his, uh, fresh off his take on the Lightning Thief musical, Noah Guzman. Noah, tell the people where they can find you and what you got going on in your life. So you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Noah's Plotting. And uh, now that that musical has wrapped, I would like to return to more reviews for ASU Odyssey online. So this next week, I am watching uh, from director, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Natalie Biancheri. There is a movie called Wolf. Short synopsis is a high concept art house drama about a boy who believes he is a wolf. Um, I'm quite interested in this one because of the two stars. They star Lily Rose Depp and George McKay. George McKay from 1917 playing the lead. Um, I can't wait to watch this. I'm going to go watch this maybe like on Tuesday and I will have a review ready and I can't wait to talk about it on the pod. 
Sweet. And then for me, uh, you could find me on Instagram at samiam520 or on Twitter at s underscore anchorvia. Got a bunch of shenanigans, whether we're talking about video games, random thoughts throughout the day, or uh, movies, of course. So plenty of reviews coming down the pipeline. Excited to share them with all of you. And um, yeah, let's um, let's have some fun. That Power of the Dog critique is coming eventually. Uh, you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. As far as, as far as my reviews go, uh, Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's latest should be coming in the next couple of weeks, just depending on when that film uh, expands as well. Ghostbusters Afterlife will be out as well. Uh, check out my again latest guest appearance on No Kips Required. Check that out and follow my band at Killbox Underscore Music. We've got some gigs coming up in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned for that. Uh, stay tuned for all of that. From plot devices, from myself, from Samantha and Corvaya, from Noah Guzman. This is once again from plot devices. Again, follow us on social media, follow us on things. Have a happy Thanksgiving if we don't hear from you, if you don't hear from us by then, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>